Good morning and welcome to Emmett Audio. I'm sitting in my kitchen carving a spoon before Dan Bunting gets here for a spoon carving lesson. Um, and unfortunately the dishwasher is going in the background so I've mounted the phone on a tripod facing me and away from the dishwasher. Hopefully that will help. Um, and if I pause it's because I'm figuring out what I'm doing with this spoon. But uh, Today, I want to start describing the process that I have of choosing a piece of wood and using the axe safely to prepare the spoon blank. I'm not sure I'll get all the way through doing the spoon blank or whether it even makes sense to do that in the same issue as this episode as this. I think maybe it makes sense to split those two things up. But let's talk for a second about where you might find yourself when you start setting out to carve a spoon. So probably you have in mind the spoon that you want to carve. For me, it's because I have an order list that I'm working from, but you know, if you're just like, hmm, what do I feel like carving? You have two choices. One is you could either decide ahead of time what you want to carve, or you could uh, start working a piece of wood and decide what the piece of wood wants to be. Either way, you want to select your piece of wood, either because it's the piece of wood you're excited about working or because it's the piece of wood that you think is going to produce the spoon that you want. So you have to take into consideration size and whether you need totally clear grain or whether you can get away with some swirliness. For instance, when I'm doing a spatula, I just want completely clear straight grain because the wide flat faces of a spatula make it very difficult to accommodate any grain tear out. Um, so you select your piece of wood and then you either, you know, you, you either saw it off a log or it's already the right length. And what I prefer is a piece of wood that has an extra three or four inches on it or even more beyond what I need for the spoon itself. So usually I, if I'm bucking up a piece of wood, I'll buck it to 16 or 18 inch lengths because that's what my wood stove will hold. And that's convenient because it means that anything that is too, that reveals itself to be too twisted, too knotty, too, too anything other than exactly right, I can just chuck in my wood stove. I don't have to saw it again. Um, so, uh, so I do that and then, give me, I'm trying to figure out alignment on this spoon. Um, so I select a piece of wood, I bucket to length. I want those extra couple of inches because that's what's going to keep my hand safe when I'm using the axe is that I it allows me to work three or two or three or four inches below where my hand is holding the piece of wood. This is really different than what you see most other spoon carvers do and I think it's a really important point to drive home. I don't quite know why for instance spoon carvers in the UK almost always work from bulks of wood that are exactly the length of the spoon that they want so short and they developed a way of axing that really involves um, you know manipulating these short pieces of wood and I don't know why they do that maybe because wood is scarce I think partly some of them started doing it because wood was scarce and then others simply followed along where I live wood is abundant and when you think about it wood is very abundant compared to the number of fingers you've got so I always emphasize keeping my hands safe over making the most efficient use of any particular piece of wood. So 16 to 18, 18 inch lengths, 
that will produce a bunch of these little offcuts that also get burned in the stove. Um, and, and then I split it. And I either split it, if it's really big, I'll split it with a, a splitting maul. Sometimes I'll do a hit with a splitting maul and then it won't crack the log all the way in half. And then instead of hitting it again with the splitting maul, I actually pull the splitting maul out and put in a wedge and then drive that in with the back of the maul. Because if you go making multiple whacks with an axe or a splitting maul, you're going to introduce cracks in the wood, some of which are going to be right close to each other. And you might back yourself into a corner where you've put so many cracks into the piece of wood that there's no longer a usable piece for a spoon in there that doesn't have cracks in it already. So starting one crack with a single blow and then if it doesn't completely pop the piece apart, using the wedge to continue that crack is a smart move because it minimizes the number of splits that are within the wood. Um, then uh, once I have, you know, uh, either a quarter of a log or, or a smaller piece, depending on how big it was and what I was splitting off, I then take that smaller piece that's maybe going to be split down to be two or three or even four pieces of uh, four spoons, depending on the size. I'll take those to the, the, the stump and I will split those with the axe. I don't split ever with a fro. I, I own two fros. I actually just lent both of them to my apprentice so that he could try using them. But I have found fros to be an awkward tool for splitting the size and thickness of wood that is often used for spoon carving. I think fros are really well suited for splitting relatively short, like 10, 12 inch bulks of pine or cedar um, for making shingles. I think they're great. And I think they're also good at splitting thin pieces for making like chair parts because you can control the split a little more accurately than, than with an axe. For essentially cordwood sized pieces that you're whacking apart, I have found an axe and a club to be by far more efficient and easier than a fro. The problem with the fro is that it's so short from the back of the spine to the edge of the blade that it rarely has, and it's usually pretty thinly tapered, that it rarely has much wedging action on its own. To get wedging action with a fro, you've got to um, cock the handle of the fro. That's the whole point, is that then the blade sort of spins within the wedge and it, and it pries it open. Well, that cocking force is, it requires a, a countervailing force against it for it to work. And uh, if it's just a short bulk of wood like you're making shingles, that's pretty easy to achieve. You just hold it still with your hand and, and you give a twist and it, and it pops free. If it's, um, if it's a longer piece of wood, you use what's called a riving break, which is a, a crotch of, of a tree trunk that has a crotch in it that you can essentially wedge your long piece of wood in and that provides the countervailing force for the twisting of the handle of the fro. Now, on a spoon stump, you got neither of those. You have a piece that's kind of too long to um, to have the easy popping action of of a um, of like a, a block that you're turning into shingles, and you don't have any way to 
brace it. And so you sort of end up trying to pin the block down with your hand and twist the fro and it's just awkward. I have found it much more effective to use my axe. Now, when you are using your axe to split apart a piece of wood on the stump, there's a couple important things to keep in mind. One is, as the axe pops free, if it is facing towards you, there is a strong possibility that it will drive down and into your leg. So you have to make sure that that the, uh, the axe head, when it pops free from that cut, is not going to swing down and towards you. It will swing down and towards you if the handle of the axe is facing you. So rotate the axe head 90 degrees. Not You might need to rotate, obviously you're rotating a piece of wood as well. The piece of wood and the axe head on the stump 90 degrees so that the axe handle is facing off to the side. And that way when it swings down and free, it swings down completely away from your body and off to the side and keeping your femoral artery safe. So that's super important. Second is you want to use a club. And I believe I described making a club in an early episode. But basically, you know, you want to use a club to whack the back of the axe rather than swing the axe down towards your hand that's holding this piece of wood. Number one, because you're going to be have much greater accuracy in exactly where precisely you want the split to be, but also because um, you are going to keep your hand safe. Because when you're swinging the axe down towards your hand, all it takes is a misjudgment of a you know, centimeter or two, and you're chopping off a portion of your hand. So use a club and you place the axe where you want it to be on top of the wood. And then with the club, you give a sharp strike and you want that strike to be pretty sharp blow, that first blow, because you need it to sink in and bite in. And if you are too timid with that first blow, what happens is it actually can bounce. The axe particularly on green, green wood, like green cherry or hickory or, or maple, it'll actually bounce rather than sink in. And then it can, it can bounce so that it comes down on your hand. It can bounce so that it comes down and puts a, a crack where you don't want the crack to be. It's bad news. Um, so you want that first blow with the club to be a strong enough one that it, that it makes the edge of the axe drive into the wood. And again, the handle of the axe is not going to be facing you, it's going to be facing off to the side. Um, now, let's talk about how things split for a second. Pieces of wood split such that the split that is created will always run towards the side that has less mass, which is to say that if one side of your split has a lot less material than the other side, the split will always run out on that side. You can use this to your advantage, and I've, I've talked in the Spoonosaurus videos on the Spoonosaurus Instagram account. <coughs> Excuse me. A number of times about how to essentially use that propensity of the split to run out towards the narrow side to create you're cranked with, that, with very little axing because you can essentially create a slope coming in from two angles. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, if you're not entirely sure what's going to happen, it's a good idea to just split things in half or more or less in half. And the further you can go with splitting, the less actual axing you're gonna have to do. So I always try to get down to a reasonably small size piece of wood 
as this stage of splitting before I do any axing because if you can reduce by half or third the thickness of the piece of wood you're gonna get through um, sorry I'm making a difficult cut on the spoon um, you're gonna get through all the sort of really heavy axe work much more easily um, because God, the grain changes here um, because that early axe work where you're really wailing away is some of the most dangerous and also the most exhausting. So splitting is a great way of reducing the amount of that kind of axe work that you need to do. Um, and again, I do that with the axe itself and a club. And so once I've split down to the piece of wood that I that I think is going to work. Now, it doesn't have to be a rectangle that I've created. It can be a wedge shape. Um, that's fine. I just need to sort of get it close to the the dimensions that I have, sort of enough wood where I need it, but but not a huge deal more. Then it's time to um, start using the axe as an axe. So let's talk about axe safety. And I think I'm going to save the actual um, steps of using an axe for tomorrow. So the axe is the quickest way you're going to really mess up your life if you don't take axe safety seriously. Uh, and it was always the part that I was completely terrified of and, and sort of felt like, well, this is how I'm going to lose a finger someday. Um, and it wasn't until I started carving blanks for other people and that forced me to do way more axe work than I had been doing that I started being able to identify and articulate these ways of keeping myself safe. And so I hope that by articulating them for you that you can keep yourself safe even without making the hundreds of blanks a month that I do. Um, the first thing I've noticed is that most people don't know where to hold the axe. There is a sweet spot on the axe handle where you get the most amount of control with the, with the most amount of power. So if your hand is too close to the head of the axe, you get a lot of control but very little power. If your hand is even an inch or two too far down the handle, let's say in the middle of the handle, you get a lot more power, but very little control. So there's a sweet spot that for me is, and I think for most people is where, you, where the top of your hand is, meaning that your thumb and forefinger are about an inch away from the bottom of the axe head, where you get the most amount of power and the most amount of control. Sort of that's where the Venn diagram of those two things overlaps. You can shift your hand up and down from there and figure out if you get more or less in either spot. And there are times when I will back my hand off further down the handle when I am working on a piece of wood and I'm working, you know, eight, 10 inches away from my hand. I might use more force by backing my hand off sometimes. It's also more exhausting, so you get less control and it's also more tiring for your body. 
So that's the first thing is holding the axe in the right place and making sure that you're holding the axe in the right place. This is where if you have a, uh, if you've developed a bad habit already, you're going to have to retrain yourself. Um, the next step is to make sure that you are axing with a waggly wrist motion. Many, many people ax with their elbows and that's going to really wear out and destroy your elbows over time. Um, instead, you've got to uh, essentially have most of the motion, 75% of the motion could, should come from a, a waggle of your wrist. And that'll create a slicing motion of the blade, which will be much more effective than, um, than if you are using just your elbow, which sort of creates a pushing, striking motion with the axe head. That's not nearly as effective. Now, the other thing that makes axing effective is accuracy. You want to be hitting essentially the same spot over and over and over again, and thus push that spot further down and down and down into the wood. So there are two types of people in this world. There are, uh, what should we call them? There are the people who, when they see a high spot that needs to get lowered, will start at the top of the high spot and nibble their way down in. Right, so if you see a corner that needs to be axed off, you're going to start at the tip of that corner and try and hit that tip of that corner, and then hit the next bit lower, and then hit the next bit lower. And each time, you're going to have to recalibrate where your tool hits. Now, you'll see this technique is the, the nibbling technique is actually good for the spoon bowl, but it's bad for axing. The other type of person in this world is the type of person who does who does the following which is you see the line that you are going to need that dives underneath something and you immediately go after that line. So you start back where the line should be and you drive your cut such that it follows that line and removes all the material on top of it. That's how you need to think of axing as driving to a line. It's like when I'm axing down um, the back of the handle, I am driving a line with the axe down the back of the handle. I'm not chopping away the stuff on top. I'm driving a line with the axe and popping free all the stuff that's on top of that motion. That is vastly helped by a, a waggling motion of your wrist, which will give you the accuracy to hit the same spot again and again and again, driving it down further and further and further. That is the secret to swift, accurate axing. Now, most people have a tendency to go too fast when they're axing. I think in part because they want it to be over or they want it to be going faster, they want to be more efficient, but they don't realize that slow is efficient because slow is accurate and slow is safe. When you try to chop fast, like chop, 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 you're going to exhaust yourself, which means you're going to be sloppier, which means eventually you're going to hit your hand and hurt yourself. It also means that you're going to, even if you manage to not hit your hand, you're going to be less accurate with the axe and more prone to making a mistake and really messing up this thing that you have been trying to be accurate on. So if most people tend to speed up till they're going chop, 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 you need to have a beat in your head that tells you 
how fast you should be going. Um, and what I have found is that it's really helpful for most people to think about the, the pace of uh, the song that is used to describe for people the pace they need for CPR, which is Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. So put on Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. You can find it on YouTube. And try axing along with it until you get that motion. It's like chop, 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 chop. You hear how that's laid back. Chop, 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 chop. It's fast enough to be accurate. Chop, chop, chop. But it's also slow enough that you can be uh, sorry, it's fast enough to be efficient, but it's slow enough to be accurate. Chop, 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 chop. That's the pace you need to have in your head when you're using the axe. Now, not only will that make you safer and more efficient, but it will also uh, allow you, if you maintain that pace, to then focus on keeping your other hands safe because it's, quite frankly, the hand that's not holding the axe that's going to suffer the damage if you don't pay attention. So one rule of thumb is to never let the axe edge go up above your holding hand. And that means, um, that usually means if you are working closer up towards your hand, your, your motion becomes incredibly gentle, way more gentle than you're thinking. And you reserve those sort of big, strong, heavy cuts for when you're working the end of the handle down way far away from your hand. Now, um, when you hold the piece of wood, I generally hold the piece of wood in, in one of two ways. Either I have the tip of my thumb on the top cut end grain of the billet of wood, and then my knuckles tucked in so that my finger pads are against my palm and my knuckles are pressing against the back of the wood so that I'm essentially pinching it between the top against my thumb and the backside against my knuckles. Or I'm using the base of my thumb to press down on the top, just like I did with the knuckles. And then I'm actually holding my fingers rigid and straight out and away from the piece of wood. And in that case, it's just pinning straight down from the top. And either way, I'm holding it down and pushing it down at an angle, not trying to have it be straight up and down, but it's at an angle, which is why it's so important to have a divot chopped into the top of your spoon carving block, um, your carving stump, so that you can press the wood in at an angle. Because what you want is to essentially Hold the wood at whatever angle allows you to keep the axe at a neutral, straight-wristed position by your side. So if you hold the axe so that it's out in front of you where you think you're going to do it, just in a neutral position, you're holding the axe, then figure out how to maneuver the piece of wood underneath it so that it's braced uh, against the stump but held at the right angle underneath the axe that the axe will bite in successfully. That's what you need to do. Don't think that you need to hold the piece of wood straight up and down and then and then essentially use the axe at an angle. Use the axe. The axe should be fixed in space, what it's doing. And then you, more or less, are maneuvering the piece of wood underneath it. 
this is where watching a video of me doing this will be really helpful. The other thing, so that's one thing, is you, you hold the wood so that it's either on the top and you're pinning on the back with the backs of your knuckles or the base of your thumb and your fingers are held away. Never ever let your fingers creep around to the front or the sides of the piece of wood. Also, make sure that you are leaving a couple inches between where you are using the axe and your fingers. You need to have that distance to keep yourself safe. So when I talk through my process tomorrow, we're gonna to talk through about all of these things about how to keep your hands safe by leaving some sacrificial wood that's gonna be removed later between your hand and the ax. Um, but again, slow, pay attention to where your hand, your holding hand is, keep your fingers off the top of the piece of wood, choke up on the ax so that you're being, um, so that you have a lot of control be slow and gentle. Never let the axe edge come up and over your hand. Make sure that you are holding the axe in a neutral, rested, relaxed position and maneuvering the piece of wood underneath the axe rather than the other way around. And we will get to all the other details tomorrow.